Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya C, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Maya, and you're again with Trials with Maya Z. And I have today a friend of mine from my LinkedIn network, Chief Wimmer. He is posting very interesting things. But one of the most interesting posts was about uh, Facebook ad and patient recruitment. And I follow Steve for quite some time. And I've seen very interesting perspective when it comes to patient recruitment. So I decided to invite Steve to this podcast and get his perspective, opinion about things that are happening in this space. Steve, welcome. And I'll give you the word to introduce yourself. Awesome. Thanks so much, Maya. Yeah, it's it's always cool to connect with people on LinkedIn. And we've actually met in, in real life as well a couple of times. So thanks for having me. Just quick background so that you can understand like my perspective. I've been in the industry for about four years and I think it doesn't matter how long I stay in the industry. I still will feel like a newbie because I don't really have a science background. And I always feel like I'm learning something every time I talk to someone. But my background is more in e-commerce, direct to consumer packaged goods was what I was doing right before coming to One in Health. So we're a patient recruitment company and my entire time in the industry has been focused on using the internet to facilitate patient recruitment. And it's been exciting. I have also joined a couple trials as a patient because I'm constantly clicking around on the internet and then getting served these ads for trials. And sometimes I want to follow them all the way through. So I have a little bit of a patient perspective as well. Steve, I had a first question, but now that you presented yourself, we have something very much in common. I don't have the science background as well. And I joined the industry from completely different backgrounds. So I know exactly what you're speaking about when you said, I learn about the industry every single day. Let's say that now, 15 years later, it's less, but still, I learn a lot. And when it comes to patient recruitment, yes, a lot to be uncovered. But you mentioned something in your introduction that you come from e-commerce. Now, the last four years, you work in the patient recruitment space. What are, in your opinion, the common things between patient recruitment, clinical research in general, and e-commerce? Sure. I think the biggest similarity is that the mechanism of using the internet as a communication platform and getting people to take actions. So you can think like a billboard on the side of the road is generally about branding and just awareness. Very few people are going to be able to take an action because they're driving their car and they can't click a button. They can't remember the thing. So it, it's more about just knowing that the thing exists. And e-commerce is very different because if you're running these ads and people are adding the item to cart and checking out, you don't have a business. So you have to be able to not only get people to take actions, but in such a way that it's like ROI positives and sustains your business. So with patient recruitment, it's a very similar mechanism of action. We're trying to get people's attention. They didn't come on social media to look for a clinical trial. There's clinical trial search engines for that. So we're interrupting their day. The reason they picked up their phone in the first place and asking them to go to a different location. So it, it just has to be a very compelling, um, message or offer, so to speak, to add to cart 
a clinical trial. And because these folks are generally not in the state of mind of thinking about their health or thinking of themselves as a patient, education is an important part of the journey. Mm -hmm. But I think the first step to even want to take that journey is positioning the trial as something compelling. I, there was a post that went around a couple of weeks ago that I saw it from Brad, but it was titled severely, please be dying, but not too quickly. And it was yeah. an ER doctor talking about her yeah. husband's cancer journey. And what was really interesting to me is that multiple times she alluded to consumer technology and how easy that was for her to do things like find a dress and just how far behind the interface and the technology was for clinical trials and just asking the question out loud, like, why is this experience so far away from what we've been conditioned to expect as consumers? So a big part of it is just aligning the journey with someone's expectation. If they're coming in the front door through an online channel, that whole journey needs to be consumer grade, which really means it looks modern. It's got a user interface that's understandable and a patient can go as fast as they want to. People generally want to self-navigate as far as they can without interacting with like customer service if they're shopping. And there's a similar situation going on with clinical trials. They do want to talk to someone eventually, but it's further down the road than I think a lot of people would imagine. Mm, yeah, makes sense. So if you have to think about your past e-commerce career, and you mentioned that article, and this story is actually one of the many out there. And as part of our platform, Find Me Cure, we help patients to apply for clinical trials, and that happens all the time. And I wonder if you now think about this story, the fact that the lady mentioned a couple of things that she used from outside of the industry that were working much better. And thinking about your past career in, in e-commerce, what would be these, I would say one thing, but let's say top three things that you think are working quite well in e-commerce, could be working quite well in patient recruitment, but they're not there yet. I'll try to answer this without maybe giving away too much of the secret sauce. I think a lot of the philosophy about how we operate at One in Health is informed by e-commerce, which we could consider under the umbrella of like performance marketing. There's another category of like awareness marketing, which is really getting your brand out there and capturing mind share. I'll say one thing at each piece of what yeah. we would call like the funnel. So getting from the world of internet users down to an actual enrolled patient. So one thing that e-commerce marketers do really well is they iterate on their messaging. So they will have 10 different versions of the same image and they'll be testing and testing and testing them to find the one that outperforms the others. And then they will put all their eggs in that basket mm -hmm. until the audience is exhausted and then they'll rotate to different creative. They'll do the same thing with messaging just to get that initial click. And the difference between some of these creative assets is astounding. So one of the things I see when I look at competitor ads or maybe ads that are being run by a sponsor or a site, and it's clear that they don't have this philosophy is that there's generally one or two images m at most. And they're almost always variations on the same theme. You see a lot of stock photography, which in our testing has performed way worse than basically any other creative asset. So abstract images, vector images, videos. If we're going to use photography, we usually treat it pretty heavily. So we'll, you know, cut out the image and put a color filter on their text over. So all that to say, top of the funnel, one thing e-commerce does really well is finding assets yeah. that work. They don't look to hit a home run. They don't spend 10 weeks brainstorming yeah. the most creative image and then put that out into the world. They put a hundred images out in the world and then let the click-through rates dictate where they're going to invest. 
the middle of the funnel, something that e-commerce I think does pretty well is they make it really easy to do the thing that they want you to do. So if you go to a shopping page, there's not a lot of bells and whistles. Amazon's may be different, but they, that's its own thing. But if you're clicking onto like a, a store page for Shopify or something, there's the image, there's some different angles, there's a little bit of text, there's add to cart. They really don't want you navigating sideways. It's going to be harder to get to like about the company or like the history of whatever. They really want you to make that add to cart decision. And so they build landing pages that are specifically designed to get you to check out. And if you go to most study pages, they're very intense. And a lot of them have tons of language, scientific language that is generally beyond the average reading level, which in the U.S. is like fifth or sixth grade, depending on who you ask. And they have all this extra information about the mechanism of action of the drug and the history of the condition and the nature of clinical trials. And all that stuff is information that people need to know, but probably not yet. If they just clicked on an ad, I think of it like a first date. You're not going to be like asking about this person's social security number and their family history and their medical history. You're just going to get to know each other. And so for us, we try to scale up the information linearly with someone's expressed interest. So if they've just clicked an ad, we're going to give them enough to maybe take a, a small next step, share some information and see if you want to go further. But when we present them with so much information, we find a lot of people just bounce off the page because it, it becomes overwhelming. And then the last step, I would say, this is the Amazon legacy in our world, is people expect next day shipping in the US at least. If you can't get a next day, it better be an awesome item or it better be absolutely free. And this idea that things should happen really quickly, even online, is in our minds now. And so one of the things that I've found is that sites just don't often operate at the speed of life. That's a phrase we use around One in Health a lot. We have to meet patients where they're at. And so if someone signed up for something online, they want to hear back as soon as possible. Whereas if, if Amazon was like, all right, you added this cart, you checked out. Two or three days from now, a person who confirms the checkouts is going to give you a call. They won't text you. They're just going to call your phone. And if you miss it, they'll have to call back another time. And then eventually when you talk to them, you'll get your item shipped to you. That's how it's working for patient recruitment right now. Like maybe the site calls patients for one trial on a Tuesday. We've in fact mm -hmm. seen this. So they'll miss the call on a Tuesday and then they'll come back next Tuesday and call again. And we have texting in our platform. So we'll go in and look and yeah. it's like Tuesday at 11.04. Sorry, I just missed your call. I'm free now. Can you call back? And then the next action is the next Tuesday and it's another call. And sometimes the processes are not aligned with the urgency that's felt by the patient. Maybe that's not even urgency. Maybe it's just interest. It's the expectations. But that interest wanes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I see the industry really struggling. We are all patients. We are all consumers. We're different generations. Our expectations change. Our interactions with doctors, nurses, hospitals, facilities change. And at the end of the day, the patient is, of course, sites as well. But the patient is the king. They're the ones to decide, should you participate in the trial or not? Should you stay in the trial or not? Of course, investigators are the ones who invite them. Investigators are the ones that they trust, usually. But at the end of the day, the final call is with the patients and their families. And if they have certain expectations, we better try to get closer to them. Otherwise, you're absolutely right. I guess to summarize, we need more e-commerce people in the clinical research space, not just with patient recruitment, but there are plenty of things that can be changed. Um, I actually have one question on the iteration thing that you mentioned. 
I love the idea because you're right. I would use an, a similar analogy. It's the same with the clinical trial design. We maybe should spend more, not just the design, but the whole planning of the clinical trial. We maybe should spend more time on the planning to perfect our value proposition to patients, to investigators, the whole strategy, and then start to execute. And right now, I think we are doing some planning, but we do everything by template. And then we jump into uh, the trial and suddenly we are, oh my God, we're in trouble. 90% of the cases. So that, it's the same with patient recruitment from what I hear. But you mentioned that iterations can help. I would call it experiments, quick experiments to see actually where to spend more, most of your budget, most of your time and energy. But wouldn't that make it also more expensive, for example, like these iterations? Like, have you done these experiments with or without iterations? And yeah, how does it work? Yeah. I don't think it necessarily makes it more expensive. I think it maybe for us, like the main expense associated with creative development is IRB approval. So submitting it to ethics committees, there are some IRBs that are charging by the image versus by whatever. So those costs though, to a sponsor are usually pretty yeah. nominal. But our advertising packets for review are 50, 70 pages long. A lot of that's images, so it's not like 50 pages of text, but we are really putting together like a bank of options for everything. And then once everything's approved, we don't need to go back to the sponsor and ask for approval. And we don't need to go to the IRB and ask for approval. We can just mix and match with this giant pool of approved content versus stick to one thing. And from a digital marketing perspective, there's really no cost. And in fact, some of these platforms will do it for you. You can upload images and text and they'll dynamically shift them around and lay them on top of one another and tell you what the winner is. That's why Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram, is such a powerful advertising tool because they have options like Dynamic Create where they're mm -hmm. going to do the switching for you. Some newer platforms are a little bit behind like TikTok, I don't think has that yet. It's uh, a couple of years behind where Meta is as an advertising platform. But yeah, iterating on, on creative, I think, is not really an expense at all. It should be table stakes, in my opinion. Yeah. Speaking about different platforms that we can use for advertising, do you have a winner in the space or which is the, like, the number one platform that you would recommend for patient recruitment? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe give a qualified answer here in that it's Meta for sure which is Facebook and Instagram for a number of reasons. One, just between those two platforms, their user base in most countries is higher than anything else that you'll see. So not just the US, but, but really like across the globe, they've just been around longer. And so they have more user base. Plus with that Facebook and Instagram combo, they've got a really wide demographic range. There's a lot of people who have Facebook accounts who haven't logged in in like a year or more than a year, but maybe using Instagram. The other piece is that like I mentioned, as a platform, it's the most sophisticated one there is. So there's plenty of social media where you can advertise, but Meta has been just building an insanely effective platform for 15 years. And so they are way ahead of the curve when it comes to tools to serve advertisers. And so the downside is that everyone knows this and because it's the easiest to use, like you could be running Facebook ads in 20 minutes if you went to YouTube and watched the, the right video. And so a lot of study sites are like, well, we get this budget from our sponsor and our chief medical officer's nephew knows how to run Facebook ads. So they're going to throw some ads up there. And 
they do, they deliver a degree of results. And what I think is that the industry's been conditioned to expect a certain type of result from online ads, and it usually falls under the umbrella of fine. And there's not really a lot of insight, in my opinion, into what's possible when some really sophisticated marketers get behind the scenes and start running these. We're just constantly hearing, oh, wow, we didn't think that was possible. So Facebook is by far and away the number one. For us, TikTok's number two. And it is wildly successful in part because there's less clutter. There's less people running ads there. And two, the, the audience is just really engaged. But it's the degree of difficulty on TikTok is five to 10x what it is on Facebook. If you Facebook, you can roll out uh, a single image and it can be meaningful for a couple of months, honestly, before you need to rotate. TikTok, your creative needs to change pretty much weekly and it has to be good. It has to be video. Like you can't just have a static image or else people just won't in interact with it. So I think for that reason, a lot of people shy away. There's also the whole privacy concern stuff, which is not my area of expertise. Yeah, of All I know is that there's a lot of engaged patients there and it's been a very meaningful platform. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you find this topic relevant, you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com. Since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. Okay, listening to you, I'm thinking everything makes sense. Besides one thing, I don't know much about marketing. That's my, not my background per se, but what I know is that everything starts with the persona and the channels that they're using. Shouldn't we be using the channels that the different people, let's say the target patient are using? And they may be Meta, Facebook, uh, Instagram. They may be others, for example. So shouldn't we create like the bundle of channels or identify the main channels based on the target people? What's your thought on that? Yeah, there's probably two schools of thought here. Uh, one is what you're talking about, where you want to build a strategic plan that aligns with the main demographics of the channel. So if less than 1% of the user base is elderly population, then you're not going to run ads there if you're looking to recruit for a study for Alzheimer's. The other school of thought is that the internet is just so big and there's so many people on all these platforms that even if it is 1% of the population, it might be meaningful. And so that's kind of where we live. We will generally carve out like 85 to 90% of our budget for things that make sense. And then we'll keep in reserve maybe 10% for things that surprise us. So we just know that the internet is a weird place and the the best approach we can have is to believe that we don't have it all figured out because that's when you get lazy and that's when you get cocky and that's when you stop experimenting. So just a quick story. We had to recruit for folks who are over the age of 65 and naive to colonoscopies, which are recommended at the age of 50 now. So they spent 15 years saying no thank you to this procedure, which is a, a meaningful one and generally covered in the U.S. So it's not an extra expense. And we had to get them to do a colonoscopy as part of this study. So one of the things we wanted to do was make sure that we were getting a demographically representative sample. And we know that in some communities of color, these health decisions might be more communally made. Yeah. So we put some ads together for TikTok about having the colon conversation with your grandparents. Um, and the idea was like communities of color, particularly, maybe they would like be closer, be more communal. 
and, and talk to their grandparents about the importance of having the screening because of how treatable colon cancer is. It's called. And we decided we're already running ads on TikTok. Let's just put some patient facing ads there as well and see what happens. You can start with a budget of $5 a day. It's inconsequential. And if it doesn't do anything, just turn it off. We doubled our budget every day for two weeks before we started to see signs of exhaustion. And by the end, we contributing, I think, 2,400 patients to this study. It was a very large sensitivity study. And about half of them came from TikTok. So 65 and up. Not from the family campaign, but direct. These 65-year-olds, there's not a bunch of them, but there's enough of them. And so that's the point that I want to make broadly is that people are everywhere. And so, yes, have a strategic plan, like rolling into the boardroom and being like, all right, folks, 65 and up, we're going to TikTok. Like everyone's going to say, cool, guys, thanks. We're going to go with the other company that makes sense. But at least like being willing to play around and experiment is important, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that reminded me of another like story that I have. I used to do patient recruitment campaigns many years ago, and we had to deal with elderly people with, I don't remember like the exact diagnosis, but they were, let's say, 65 plus, like minimum. And it turned out that their disease is so severe that they don't have the, the energy or anything basically to search for alternative or whatever, like they're on like chemotherapy and really severe side effects. And they really felt very weak, but their caregivers were, their family members, children, uh, or people that take take care of them. So sometimes we forget that it's not just the patient per se, it's the people around them that may be searching for alternatives, for one more chance, for an opportunity. And you mentioned that people are not searching for clinical trials. Maybe you're right. But at the same time, they are searching for what happens in research, what other options there are. Maybe they don't know that the answer may be in clinical trials, but they are exploring different options. And that's actually one of the things you mentioned when you discussed the e-commerce things that we can apply onto patient recruitment. You also mentioned the funnel and something that you've perfected quite well. You mentioned that people don't want to learn about, let's say, the drug and the procedures, more in details, etc. My experience is actually on the opposite. But what I've seen is not that they don't want to know about the procedure, but they want to be explained in a much simplified version. So they want to know about the side effect. They want to know about the procedures. They want to know about the science behind the new treatment, the new drug, but in just much more simplified version. So, yeah, um, I guess what you're also saying, every single patient recruitment campaign needs a lot of customization and also flexibility to work with either patients, caregivers, community, providing customized information and everything. That brings me to my next question. We met last time at the CNS Summit last week, basically. It was like really fun. And one of the best sessions that I attended was about localization of patient recruitment. And... There were different people on the panel discussion and they all discussed things like site selection and diversity in clinical trials. And they all agreed that actually localization can happen quite well on multiple levels. But when it comes to patient recruitment, like local patient recruitment, that's challenging. What's your experience? You mentioned with Meta, with Instagram, you can reach multiple countries. But how successful are you with the different cultures and different countries? Or what's your recipe for success? Sure. So we've had experience in Eastern, Central, Western Europe, and Latin America. 
Australia, New Zealand, and that is pretty much where we've been asked to deploy. So we haven't had a lot of shots on goal in the rest of the world, but our finding is generally the further the culture gap, the more important it is to work with someone who can like fact check and logic check, and it goes beyond translation. So we usually provide base English assets and then we'll have someone local pull them into the local look and feel. So if, if the images feel foreign, we'll try and rework them or have someone local give some input because it's not just translating word for word and getting it comprehensible. Like it really needs to feel trustworthy. And so if it feels too out of context, it doesn't feel trustworthy. So when it comes to localization, like my whole thesis is that there's two broad sets of people, those who are known to the investigator already. And then those who are not known to the investigator and where we sit is trying to activate people who are not known to the investigator and pull them into that orbit and make those introductions for the people who are already known to the investigator. Like that's on yeah. the site, like they go for it, do whatever it takes to activate those people. Hmm. Um, we're just trying to use one single channel, which is digital to activate folks who maybe are yeah. local, but not aware of what's going on. And I'll say just for clarity. Clarification on the education piece. I don't think there's anyone who's rolling into trial not wanting to know about side effects and how the drug's working and all that stuff. Our goal is simply to advance people as soon as possible to a conversation with the study coordinator or the PI so that they can have that conversation face to face or at least voice to voice over the phone because we find that's a lot more sticky than mm -hmm. folks who are trying to self educate reading a website. So, yeah. Yeah, agree. Like in principle, people need that content to really feel comfortable to take the the most important step, which is consenting. We just have found generally that if we try to give that all to them on a website, it's less effective than if we just try and scoot them along to, to talking to a person. Yeah, you're right. You mentioned that you try to focus on the, the patients that are unknown to the investigators and that you think that the, the quicker you put them in touch with the investigator, the better for the final outcome, let's say, for patients to decide to participate or not in the trial. But I wonder, in this life where we get information from multiple places and trying to get information from multiple places, is it also worth to actually work with the already known patients to the investigator? Because nowadays, it's not that you have a lot of time to build this relationship with your doctor. Actually, it depends. It really depends on the doctor. It really depends on even the country, the culture. But even if you have this relationship with the doctor, don't get me wrong. I just think that we are doing a poor job training the investigators on how to explain the clinical trial to the patient. We're training them on the protocol, on the execution, let's say the more medical side of the execution of the protocol. But I haven't heard of an investigator meeting where they have a special session. How can you explain this clinical trial to the patients? So I wonder, is there maybe a room where patient recruitment vendors like you guys can actually contribute to this better clarity of clinical trials, even with patients that are known to the investigators. Yeah, perhaps. I think there's a whole conversation to be had around yeah, like true. how patients who are already in databases are activated or could be activated. And I know my experience, just I've been in two back pain studies and one of them, it just felt very commercial, like in the door turnstile. Here you mm. go. Here's the thing. Sign the form. And then the other one, the, the doc came in and sat with me and talked through options and was like very present and in the room. 
So it's, yeah, it's wide ranging and I'm not even going to try and answer this one. It's too big. House. I'm going to press the call a friend button. I'm going to call you. Yeah. It's a topic for another, like for another time. Awareness is a big thing. How we communicate about clinical trials. I think we did a, a very big mistake when we didn't use the COVID-19 pandemic times to actually leverage that clinical trials is in the news and position clinical trials much better than what it is now. I hope there will be maybe another more positive event that will help us again position clinical trials more on the positive side. But let's see. Um, and Steve, before my last question, from everything I hear, you guys have a lot of know-how, how to handle campaigns, how to customize messages, like even experience with like localization, for example. I wonder at what stage sponsors and clinical research organizations should co contact people like you and companies like you guys. At, at risk of sounding like too much of a company man, I think as early as possible, like during protocol design, there's plenty of things that companies like us can do to validate some of that stuff. You talk about like patient panels, right? To give feedback on endpoints or feedback on particular assessments or whatever. That's sort of like a market research focus group, right? They come in and they look at the thing, they know that they're being asked questions. And so they're trying to sound good and intelligent and they're speaking on behalf of a bunch of other people who aren't them. It's valuable. One of the things we did in e-commerce, instead of focus grouping stuff, if we had a new product we wanted to launch, we would just put it on Amazon and see if people bought it. Instead of trying to mm. ask a bunch of questions, we would just order a minimum run. And restaurants do this too. Like uh, in the US, fast food restaurants, especially if they're rolling out a new menu item, they'll just throw it on the menu in like I Jacksonville see. and Austin and Madison, Wisconsin and see what happens. And so one of the things companies like us can do is take an idea from a protocol and just put it in front of a thousand patients really quickly. And there's other groups that work with patients specifically. I know Savvy Cooperative does that. There's a few others, but the earlier, the better, I think, because there's some stuff that just people aren't thinking about how would the average person respond to this? And it's pretty easy to model. Um, companies like ours tend to be user experience experts as well. So it doesn't have to be us, but someone. So I would say find someone you trust and engage them early. Yeah. I guess uh, anyone that's engaged, that has this direct communication with patients can really provide valuable feedback. So I think that every single vendor says the same thing to sponsors and CROs. Engage with right. us earlier. We have this know-how, what will actually be a challenge for you as you go, and we can prevent a lot of these challenges. I have one last question for you, Steve. In your opinion, from your perspective, what makes or breaks clinical trials? So I am not a scientist. My perspective is mostly the things that move the needle on how easy something is to enroll or not easy, but how likely it is to enroll. So we have some internal metrics around enrollability, basically a coefficient that we apply to any study. And the things that are most important from our end, at least in the data around our patients clicking on this, are they submitting their information? Are they flowing through from, I submitted a form to I'm showing up at the site are all about two things. One, is it attractive? So I think earlier you mentioned value proposition to the patient. Yeah. So there's a range here, but like some studies actually are really attractive and some are attractive just because they're not awful, if that makes sense. But then there are some that just, it's like, why would anyone participate in this? It just seems horrible. So 
the burden, I guess, that's been being placed on the patient for the upside. Mm -hmm. And that covers everything from compensation per study visit to delivery mechanism of the drug to the number of visits, all that stuff. There's a a scale there. And the more attractive it is to a patient, obviously, maybe this is just a truism, but easier to enroll. And the other is how hardcore the IE is, like how exclusive it is. I think there's been a lot of chatter recently about how specific some of these studies are getting and are they actually getting so specific that they're looking for patients who don't exist. Mm. I've heard a lot of folks say that clinicians, like folks who are actually seeing patients are not really weighing in as much on study design as maybe they should be, or they're seeing it too late and it's leading to a lot of amendments. We had one recently where like one of the things that we do before we send a proposal is we'll run ads to the patient population on our own dime just to see like how much does it cost to get patients like this to click ads so that we can model effectively what it's going to cost to get patients to click for the thing. And we'll ask them a couple questions about the IE. And so it was a study where the BMI had to be, I think, below 35. And so we were asking people and when we came back and reported the sponsor, we were like, hey, just so you know, about half of the patients who responded would have disqualified based on the BMI. Um, We've seen other similar studies where it's at 38 and that would have gotten you 30% of those patients back. Um, Is there a reason why it's at 35? And the sponsor was just like, no, it was just 35 in the last one. We've been talking about it. No one really knows what to do with that. So it's just crazy to me that like, I don't know, these people want, they, they were interested in clinical research. They would have at least taken the next step and they're being excluded because of an an almost arbitrary coin flip of a decision. I just, I have no idea how deep that goes and how much of it is behind the scenes. And I'm sure there's really scientifically valid reasons. So that was a very long answer to the more attractive it is to a patient and the more real life patients actually qualify for the study. I think the rest of it is manageable. Yeah, that was absolutely to my heart, basically, because I'm super big on this topic with patient feasibility or otherwise said, is the trial feasible for a patient point of view? Steve, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. It was very informative to me and I'm pretty sure for everyone else listening. Thank you once again for your time. Thanks for the invite, Maya. Always a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.